This morning we're resuming a study that we had begun before uh, the season of Advent entitled Jesus Is, and so we're picking up with that study. Um, if you're trying to kind of like where are we in our uh, study schedule, so we're picking up with that series, and it works well uh, for us in this particular case because on the church calendar, uh, we, this is kind of the season of Epiphany. We had. We had Epiphany this, this past week, the actual day of January the 6th, I believe. And so this is known as the first Sunday after Epiphany or Theophany, sometimes it's called. Those are kind of big words, kind of unfamiliar words. Uh, but it basically means the idea of an Epiphany or a Theophany means an appearance of God or a manifestation uh, of God. And, of course, whatever that might, might have meant in the Greek world 2,000 years ago, for us, when we say the appearance of God, what we mean is Jesus. He is the full self-revelation of God. And more specifically then, uh, originally the Feast of Epiphany for the early church, the Feast of Epiphany encompassed a whole bucketful of events in the life of Jesus, including his birth, uh, man, the wedding at Cana, the uh, uh, backing up the visit of the Magi that we have from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus' baptism. Uh, there was a, a whole bucket full of events from the life of Jesus that were originally included in the commemoration of Epiphany each year on the church calendar, the liturgical calendar as it's also known. Uh, but eventually some of those events were separated out to be commemorated kind of separately on their on their own. And so for many parts of the church, this Sunday, first Sunday after Epiphany, uh, it's customary for Christians to commemorate one particular moment that was been extracted from the bucket of events that was Epiphany, and that is to recognize the moment of the baptism of Jesus. And so that's where we're focused this morning, the baptism of the Lord. That's all according to the church calendar. Now, I know that for some of us Protestants, and in particular uh, a subset of Protestants, the evangelicals, um, some folks might bristle at the idea of the church calendar or the liturgical calendar, you know, like kind of common and certainly in the evangelical ethos, you know, it would be something like, you know, we don't need no stinking church calendar to tell us, you know, how to worship. We, we have a fresh, vibrant, personal relationship with God, and so we can, you know, we, our faith is vital and vibrant through this, you know, f fresh, you know, relationship with the living God, that kind of uh, sentiment. Now, that church calendar kind of smacks of dry ritualism and, uh, you know, we're going to sap away our spiritual vitality. This is kind of a common thought process, I realize, uh, among some Christians. But I just want to say this. Um, in its simplest form, the very old idea, the very ancient idea, uh, the purpose of the liturgical calendar uh, could be said like this. The, the, the reason that our great-great-great-great-grandparents in the faith came up with such a notion uh, Stated most simply would be to say it something like this. Its purpose is to teach us to see Christ in everything and to see everything through the lens of Christ. That's the, the intention, the, 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 core purpose, the core purpose. And so the, the church calendar leads Christians through the entire year 
uh, and every time we, you know, make a circle around the sun, um, going through the, 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 the life of Jesus, the significance of Jesus, the meaning of Jesus. And so we could say it this way then, the intent of something like the church calendar is that we would be transformed as followers of Jesus, transformed, well, I guess we could say, into the likeness of Christ. The purpose then of something like the church calendar is that Christians, as the Jesus revolution spreads through time and around the globe, that Christians would be formed into the likeness of Christ. Um, now, just to kind of point, counterpoint with that, speaking of seeing everything, uh, seeing Christ in everything, he's seeing everything through the lens of Christ. This week, of course, um, in our nation's capital, we all watched the terrible, violent chaos unfold. I think it was, was that Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon? Um, and in one sense, this is not newsworthy at all. <laughs> um, this is what humans do. This is how humans behave historically, whether today or in times past, whether on this piece of dirt or some other piece of dirt around the planet. Uh, this is how human beings all too often behave. Violence, destruction, various forms of tyranny, one against and over the other, death dealing. I think the death toll is now four, or is it five people who died as a result of uh, the mob on Wednesday. So in one sense, this is not newsworthy. This is humanity, uh, at least in terms of what would be the opposite of President Lincoln talked about our summoning our better angels. What would be the opposite of our better angels, <laughs> our worser angels, our darker angels? Um, so we, also, we saw this unfold on Wednesday. Um, but what captured the attention of many as we watched those events, including myself, um, were the, the Jesus banners in the midst of all that. Did you all notice that? The big banners that were like, there was like a big Jesus saves sign, and there was like people carrying Jesus flags. In the midst of criminal activity, violent activity, an attempted sort of, you know, it, the purpose of that mob was to overturn the results of a free and fair election. I mean, it was like, what in the world is Jesus doing in the midst of all that mayhem? This is a great irony. A Jesus saves banner in the middle of this satanic display of human ugliness? What is going on here? Um, well, at bottom, I just want to say, uh, this is really emblematic and symbolic of what is the failure of the church to actually point Christians to Christ himself as a formative function transforming in a transformational way, transforming actual Jesus followers actually into the likeness of Christ. And so, yeah, I want to say I'm grateful for folks like our great, 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 great grandparents in the faith who would say, man, let's try, let's try to put some things in place that would, that would extend, you know, beyond our lives and, beyond, and just help to lock in Whoever it may be that becomes a part of this movement, a part of this revolution, a part of this thing that we call the church, to lock in those followers 
into Christ himself again and again and again, continually, and so on. And so, uh, and, it's, and again, it is, I think, deeply ironic that these events unfolded on the week of Epiphany, <laughs> where we commemorate the fact that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who said, love your enemies, the one who said, it's the world that attempts to lord it over one another, but among you, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. You're going to come underneath and serve. This is the great revolution, the great uh, uh, scandal of Christianity, that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the full self-revelation of God. And it is, I think, highly ironic that on the week of Epiphany, we saw not all, but at least some who would carry a Jesus banner who completely don't get it. And so what we're focused on, those of you who are with us in live stream, those of you who are with us in person, what we're focused on is something like that. Let's train our eyes to Jesus and let's see Christ in everything and let's see everything through Christ himself. And so with all of that, this morning we are together with believers all over the world and throughout the centuries who on this Sunday remember the baptism of the Lord. So let's see what to make of it. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll back up and kind of go through it step by step for some takeaways. Here we go from Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Baptized by John, that would be John the Baptist, right? And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then we'll tag on these next two verses. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. All right, so let's let's back up and uh, think a little bit about this moment. What is its meaning? What does it say to us about who Jesus is? That's our the way we're in framing this study. What does it say to us about who Jesus is? And then maybe some second and third questions. What does this say to us about who God is or what God is like? And then you know, also important is what does something like this say about who we are, who we are in the mind and heart of God. So first of all, let's just kind of back way up and try, if we can, uh, to put ourselves in the sandals of John the Baptist as a, as a starting point and think about the meaning of baptism in the ancient, not just ancient, but in the, even in the modern-day uh, Jewish consciousness, right? What is, what is the meaning of baptism in the Jewish consciousness, in the Jewish imagination? Um, and of course, back and way up, the Jewish people, John the Baptist's great, 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 great grandparents, uh, they had, you know, and you, many of you know the story from Genesis, the book of Genesis, they had found their way into Egypt and had kind of frog in the kettle type, you know, over process of time, found themselves as a slave race within and among the culture of Egypt and hundreds of years 
had gone by. 400 years, more or less, elapsed. So you had, well, I don't know how many generations you could uh, count that up, but, you know, dozens of generations of Jew- Jewish Hebrew people um, had, that's all they had ever known, was living in the culture of the Egyptians as a slave people. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that by this time you maybe had a generation who didn't know anything about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their patriarchs. Um, all they knew was enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, right, in, in particular at the top of that, top of that mountain. Um, someone said that the, the, the pyramids in Egypt existed as a visible sign and symbol of the society of Egypt, that there are fewer and fewer people at the top, and finally there's only one person at the top, and over, over, overruling all of those, all the other masses and over the little people uh, is Pharaoh himself. And so the, the many uh, archaeologists have come to see the pyramids in Egypt as a great sign of how their society worked, the few ruling over the many. And in the midst of this situation, all of a sudden, almost overnight, God shows up out of nowhere in and through what we now know of as the prophet Moses. You know, the story goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and eventually the people are delivered um, uh, out of Egyptian slavery. And significantly, for our purposes this morning, they are taken through the Red Sea as a part of this deliverance story, as a part of this emancipation story where God acts you know, single-handedly, unilaterally in favor of the Hebrew people uh, in this emancipation freedom moment, God takes them through the Red Sea. Well, the point of all that is to say from that time on in the Jewish consciousness, the whole idea of baptism has represented freedom, emancipation from the powers of enslavement and into the new life of God. And so now, that was hundreds of years before. Now let's fast forward to John the Baptist time and think about the significance of what John is doing. Why is John, the wild-eyed preacher, why is he taking people out to the Jordan River and leading this this uh, sort of in mass baptism practice? What's he doing? Well, John is essentially saying that a new exodus is about to occur. That's John's sense of things, that God, what God did way back then, God is about to do here and now, right? Because remember, during this time, the Jewish people were in their own land, yeah, sure enough, but they weren't actually free. They were still ruled over, not now, not by Pharaoh, but by Caesar. They were part of the uh, Roman Empire. So Caesar is the new Pharaoh. Uh, And so John is taking the Jewish people, once again, out to the Jordan River this time, in leading them in baptism, this symbolic idea that God is about to bring about a new exodus. Our Heavenly Father is rescuing us from this misery. Our Heavenly Father is embracing us out of our abandonment or our sense of abandonment here. So uh, this is essentially what John is saying in his baptism practice, right? So here's John. He's the forerunner of the arrival of what he believes to be the Messiah sent by God, the Deliverer, who will fully and finally, once and for all, deliver the Hebrew people uh, from their slavery. And this new exodus is going to 
occur. And so he is essentially reenacting the Exodus moment because this is precisely what John believes is happening once again, except this time it is real and it is forever. So this is, that's something like the imagination of what's going on in John's heart and mind. And then we have this report of Jesus himself stepping into John's program. Jesus himself stepping into John's program and being baptized. Now, what do we make of that, right? Like everything that I just said about John and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Hebrew people being enslaved, I mean, all that. What does Jesus have to do with that story? Well, in one sense, we could say, and this is like the minimum thing we say, is that Jesus is in accord with John. Jesus is essentially saying, John, you're right. You're right. This is exactly what's happening. This is Emancipation Day. This is the liberation program. This is God's full, final, big picture, and we'll get to more of that. How big is this picture? This is Jesus saying, yeah, John, you're right, and I'm in on it too. This is emancipation. Now, there's another piece that we need to bring into this story, and that is, once again, in the Jewish consciousness, some things about Messiah. And one bit that's critically important for us, and then we're going to expand on that a little further, is that in the Hebrew mind, and this is drawn from the thinking of the prophets and so on, once the promises of Messiah had begun to appear on the Jewish landscape, there's this notion that somehow Messiah is an individual. Some actually thought two individuals. But Messiah is an individual, and at the same time, Messiah, when Messiah comes, he will encompass all uh, of Abraham's descendants. So as an individual, he will wrap us all up in himself in, in the sense that so that his victory will be our victory, right? And so the idea you could think of, um, if you remember the story <coughs> of uh King David before he was recognized as king when he killed Goliath, right, as an example. So when, when young David killed Goliath, all of Israel took that as their victory, right? Well, I mean, it was David's victory. He was the one who threw the stone and destroyed Goliath, but it was a victory for all of Israel. Well, something like that can be extrapolated broadly into the entire idea for how all of Israel thought about Messiah when he comes, his delivery his 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 victory will be our victory well so when we take this kind of big thought and we apply that to this moment of Jesus stepping into John's program we also need to appreciate that that element uh, is in this moment as well that in some way when as Jesus steps in, to John's program, then all of those who are enveloped in the Christ story are taken into John's program as well. In other words, as Jesus steps into John's emancipation program, his freedom program, his new exodus program, Jesus is taking all of us into this 
new exodus, this freedom program, some way, somehow. Messiah embodies all of his people. His freedom is our freedom. His, and we get this from Isaiah and other New Testament writers will draw this out, that his suffering is our suffering. His victory is our victory. His, his God-embracedness is our God-embracedness. This, this incorporation and identification spills out all over the place. Let me say all of that in a word, and this is kind of the nature of words. It's almost like, unfortunately, sometimes big words are unavoidable, uh, and it's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case that you need a big word because it's a big honking idea. Well, one of the early church fathers uh, uh, used a word, and there's a Greek word for it. I'm going to use the English word for it, um, to, to convey all of this in a single word. And he talked about the idea of recapitulation. That's a recapitulation. Six syllables. Is it too early for a six-syllable word? That's almost 11. It's okay. Six-syllable word. All right. Recapitulation. Uh, and, you know, you, you get the idea, even if you don't have a dictionary handy, what recapitulation means. It means we're going we're gonna to back up and we're going to collect it all together and we're going to re-summarize all of that, right? right. Like, like in music sometimes we, we talk about that in an arrangement as we've been playing a song for a while. And then when we get to the end, we're going to recapitulate, you know, the theme of that song, you know, for an ending. So it's, it's a word that applies in lots of, uh, lots of different contexts. Well, what St. Athanasius said is that essentially what God is doing in Christ, what God has done in Christ, is that Christ has now recapitulated all of humanity in Jesus. Well, that's a giant thought. But he's drawing upon the thinking of like the Apostle Paul, right? So like the Apostle Paul is going to say, uh, that Jesus, this is an example of Paul's thinking that St. Athanasius was drawing from, that Jesus, he's going to say, is the new Adam. Well, what's he saying? Well, just in the sense that all of us, humanity, we can all see ourselves in Adam in some way, right? Like we all inherit from Adam, even if whether you want to or not. <laughs> you know, we inherit from Adam, for better or for worse. Uh, so Paul says, well, yeah, well, just if you see yourself in Adam, and, and you do, all of us do, that's, that's the meaning of the Genesis story. Uh, Paul says, now what God has done in Christ is Christ is the new Adam. So now all of us inherit, just as we inherited from Adam, we now inherit from Christ. He has, Christ has recapitulated humanity. Or Paul says in another place that in Christ, God is making one new humanity. It's unfortunate. I think the translation in a lot of English, English um, uh, translations, it says making one new man. And that's, that's accurate, but it, it's a misconception because we think so individualistically. So we think one new individual. And that's not the meaning of what Paul was saying. That what Paul is saying, he's making like a third genus. <laughs> he's making, making one new humanity in Christ. That's, that's what was firing in Paul's heart and mind as he wrote that line. And so St. Athanasius picks up on these ideas and then looking at back at stories like this, the baptism moment of Jesus and saying, oh, here's an example. 
Here's Mark telling us in narrative form what Paul tells us in sort of like abstract theological form, that in Christ God is making one new humanity. And so then St. Athanasius is going to go back to the story of Jesus' baptism and say, here, here's an example. Here's an example of Jesus recapitulating humanity. He is identifying wholly, entirely, through and through with humanity in all of his life uh, ministry and ultimately his suffering and death and, yes, even his resurrection. He is recapitulating everything that it means to be human, and he's redoing it all, and he's renewing it all in Christ. That's what God is doing. And so St. Athanasius is going to say, when you see this moment of Jesus' baptism, understand that in some way, somehow, his baptism is your baptism. And when he goes through the water from enslavement into freedom, this is your going through the water from enslavement into freedom. That is a mindful of wonder right there. And so uh, there's kind of a setup. Now, let's, let's continue on reading uh, verse 10. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. All right, so a handful of observations from this portion of the story. Uh, and the first thing, let me just say, have you, have you noticed that uh, in Mark's telling of the story, the actual baptism of Christ isn't even mentioned by Mark, right? So we left off uh, verse 9, Jesus came and he was baptized by John, and then as he was coming up out of the water, right? So it's the baptism itself is not even mentioned. Now, you know, that's just an observation, such as, as it stands. It's just... It's just an observation, but let me just kind of maybe make a little bit of an implication. Um, first, let me say, I think the fact that it's the baptism itself is not mentioned by John does not indicate to us that baptism doesn't matter. We think baptism really does matter. But also, I think it's also fair to say that for Mark, who, you know, the gospel of Mark among the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Gospel of Mark is known for its speed. I mean, it just, it just moves along. Uh, one of the trademark words that you'll hear over and over in the Gospel of Mark, more so than any other Gospel, is immediately, immediately, immediately. It's as if Mark is telling the story of Jesus with this breathless pace because he wants his readers to read it, digest it, and then get on with the Jesus program, right? So the, the purpose of the Jesus program is not to read stuff, it's to do stuff. It's to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. And uh, that kind of comes through loud and clear from the Gospel of Mark. And so, with that said, kind of from a big picture, maybe we could say that even here in this moment, Mark is suggesting to us not that baptism doesn't matter, but that perhaps we are wise to think about, I mean, what I'm going to say, think about uh, the so what of baptism, <laughs> right? Like, so when you think about baptism, it matters but the, perp the point of baptism is not mostly the baptism itself. The point of baptism is the so what. I mean, baptism is a crucial concern, but, but the so what of baptism. In other words, what is the result of our baptism 
into Christ? I want you to think about that question. I guess, would I say that as a question? Whatever. I want you to think about that as we um, consider further this moment in the life of Christ. In other words, I'm trying to be really careful here. I know it sounds like I'm talking in circles, but, but it's not to say that baptism doesn't matter. It does. The baptism itself does matter. But I think there is also a vital takeaway here, the fact that John, Mark skips over the description of the actual baptism, and maybe what we could take away from that is that the crucial concern is the so what of our baptism. What is the carryover? What's the follow-through? What's the result? What's the consequence? What's the implication of our baptism into Christ? Okay, now, very slowly here, Mark does mention, while he doesn't describe the baptism itself, he does mention a handful of other specific details, and this is where we're going to spend our last few moments together this morning. First of all, Mark mentions what, how it's written in this English translation. The heavens, he says, are torn apart. The heavens are torn apart. I, and I just want to say, I think this is crucial language. Um, in other words, it almost sounds destructive, right? Like he could have just said the heavens opened. That would be a milder, you know, gentler description, right? But, but he didn't. It says, it says the heavens were torn apart. And so it really does beg the question. And again, when I talk about Mark as a writer, we understand Mark is led along, inspired by the Spirit himself. So why, why torn apart? The heavens, the heavens were torn apart. And, and I just want to say, as a, as a, uh, uh, a suggestion of an answer. I want to say what we all know, like intuitively, about life. And that is that sometimes, and I want to say all the time, in order for something new to emerge in our lives, the things that now are, most of the time, are going to have to be torn apart. You could, you could use other images. In order for something new to emerge in your life and in my life, the things that now are are going to need to be uprooted, torn down. In other words, it's, it's not mostly the case that we go from ugly to beautiful in this mild, gentle, almost unnoticed trend. That rarely happens, right? Like usually, most of the time, Whenever it comes to the darkness and the brokenness in our lives, individually, in our families, in our world, most of the time, that transformation from ugly to beautiful, from injustice to justice, from, from, uh, from well, and I don't mean biological sickness, but, but from sickness, collectively speaking, to wholeness, collectively. Most of the time, that transformation, stepping across that threshold, involves, requires something that's more accurately described using a description that's more, well, more like torn apart. Um, perhaps not all the time, but most of the time. So he's describing this 
this destructive, the heavens were torn apart. And so, and let me just say, remember here, this is, again, when I say Mark, this is Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describing this moment of Jesus' baptism, which in, in many ways is the kickstart of the ministry of Jesus, which is the inauguration of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And there's another kind of destructive sounding, right, like, like image that you hear get frequently uh, in the stories about Jesus, that, that Jesus is the breaking in of the kingdom of God. So Mark kicks off his telling of the ministry of Jesus, which is the inauguration of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And Mark includes this idea that at the moment of Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn apart. What is this? What is he saying? This is a God who is willing to break stuff in order to embrace and heal humanity. This is the story of a God who is ready to tear some things apart, to uproot some stuff, to break some things open in order to pour out his embrace and his rescue to and upon humanity. Jesus would, would carry this forward into our own um, words and imagination and in specifically here into our prayer life when in the middle of what many would say, you know, I would say, his greatest sermon, when he teaches us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, here Mark is giving us this, this visible picture of our heavenly Father tearing apart the heavens in order to bring his will in heaven to be done on earth, to bring about his healing, his wisdom, his wholeness, his wise and loving rule from heaven to earth. So Mark tells us that in the moment of Jesus' baptism that the heavens were torn apart. And then he says <laughs> that the Spirit descended upon Christ like a dove. That's a beautiful image if you think about it. The Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Obviously, it's a symbol. Um, but what does... What does the use of a dove as a symbol for the Spirit of God, what does that indicate to us? Right? Like, I would, I would assume that, you know, even for our culture as it would have been for, for their culture half a world away and 2,000 years ago, the qualities and characteristics of a dove speak the same to us as they would have to them. Right? A dove is a symbol of Gentle, gentleness, doves are gentle, they're peaceful, right? Doves are beautiful. Uh, that's, those are some of the qualities of a dove. It is significant that Mark uses the symbol of a dove to indicate the Spirit descending upon Christ. What is that? Well, the Holy Spirit is gentle. He's peaceful. He's beautiful. He's, you know, we, as, as Americans and not just our culture, but other cultures around the world throughout history have used birds to symbolize, you know, their, something about their nation or their sense of nationality. America, of course, uses the eagle. Um, so did 
Rome. Rome used the eagle. Um, you know, an eagle, there's a cer- there is certainly a beauty about an eagle. But it's also true that an eagle is a predator. And we better appreciate here for a moment that when it comes to, for our nation and other nations around the world, other cultures, when we choose birds, <laughs> we, choose, we choose birds because they're mean and they kick butt, right? But you need to know that when your heavenly father chooses a bird, he chooses a dove because a dove is gentle and peaceable and in all ways beautiful, not predatorial. There's something significant about this. The Spirit of God is gentle. He's peaceable. He's beautiful in all ways through and through. So the Spirit descends upon Christ like a dove. It's rich. It's visual. It's significant. Then the voice from heaven. Mark says, A voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Now, just for starters, recognize here we have Jesus in the Jordan River water with John the Baptist, the son of God. And we have the Spirit descending like a dove. And now we have the voice of the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here, just as we roll through this, considering this account, we have what is actually a very early portrait of the Trinity, what we now know of and describe as the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, one God who is known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, this is very important. It's, it's equal parts, like uh, you can't, it, it, it doesn't work rationally. So it's equal parts that, and it's equal parts critically important for us to embrace. This three-in-one God is entirely unified in nature, character, and personality. If you're familiar with the work of the psychiatrist Sigmund Freud, you may be familiar with his concepts of the id, the ego, and the superego. And this is Freud's way of describing what for him was, a, what is it, was an experience and observable reality about human personality, that there seems to be three different expressions of a single human being that Freud described the id, the ego, and the superego. And this is not, the purpose of this is not to, to do a thing about Freud. But for Freud, those three uh, represented very different aspects of one human being's personality. All right. What we're saying when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity is not what Freud was saying. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three different, uh, three different personalities of God. No, these three are one. They are united in purpose, character, personality, and 
mission. The three persons of the Godhead are entirely unified. They are one, completely, fully, entirely united. This is a beautiful portrait in the baptism of Jesus, a beautiful portrait, early portrait, of what we now call the Trinity. And what does the voice of the Father say? This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. This is the voice of the Father. In this moment, Mark gives us the Spirit speaks. Jesus would later describe the Holy Spirit as the advocate. You have an advocate with the Father. That means one who is for you, one who is on your side. Let me just say what we take away from this is that this is always how the Spirit speaks. He is our advocate. There is a spirit who speaks a word of accusation. There is a spirit who speaks a word of fear. There is a spirit who speaks a word of intimidation. There is a spirit who speaks a word of condemnation. But that's not the voice of the Spirit of God. The voice of the Spirit of God is always the voice of advocacy. This is my son the beloved, the one whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Now, you know, clearly we can kind of play the movie forward and think about how meaningful this was for Jesus himself um, to have this voice of his heavenly Father ringing in his head, this is my son, the one whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And we can think about that from like a human standpoint. I know for me, in my life, I am grateful that my father... Um, uh, throughout my entire life, I love you, son. I'm proud of you. I love you, son. I'm proud of you. From the time I was a little bitty till you know my my most recent birthday, my dad go, I love you, son. I'm proud of you. I mean, I can hear the voice of my own earthly father ringing in my head with those words, and I'm deeply grateful for that. And as I've grown and gotten to know other men, I've realized that I am very fortunate to have a father who is profusive with that kind of language. Uh, to me. And so I can say from an earthly standpoint, no doubt about it. But what I'm saying for us today as a primary uh, focus is that this word from God in this moment speaks to us about the character and personality of this God. This is the word of this God to Messiah, who is the recapitulation of all humanity. This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And again, we draw from the thinking of the Apostle Paul. He's going to say something like this, that in Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. What's he saying? That what God has indicated in and through Christ is God's indication to and for all of humanity. So here's what I want you to know as we're done this morning. Just as the Messiah represents his people in his victory, in his liberation, even in his suffering, et cetera, et cetera. He also represents all of humanity in the affirmation that he's received from God. Jesus himself is God's word to you that he loves you and with you 
he is well pleased. You are the beloved of God. One more on this and we'll be done. Romans chapter 2. This may surprise some. Here's again the Apostle Paul. He says, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's spiritual and not literal. Now listen to this. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Now that it's a, comes in the midst of a whole context, which I'm kind of fast-forwarding here, but let me just reconstruct that sentence. <laughs> Such a person's praise comes from God. Can you believe that the Apostle Paul is saying that? Such a person's praise comes from God. A person, a person who finds him or herself in Christ, caught up into the Christ consciousness, caught up into what God has done in and through Christ, caught up in this story that we're caught up in. That person's praise, Paul says, comes from God. So I want to invite you, and for some this is like fresh, cool water, and you know, it's like, yes. But for some this may be a little difficult, but I want to ask you nevertheless. I want to ask you to hear this word from your Heavenly Father. You are a daughter of God. You're His beloved. And with you, He is well pleased. You're a child of God. You are the beloved of God. That's why there's a Jesus, because you're beloved of God. That's why the heavens are ripped apart, because you are beloved of God. And with you, He is well pleased. That's beautiful. And then just... Not to dwell on this, but just to include it, because Mark did. (laughs) Verse 12, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is important, I think, for us, because this... This meditation on the baptism of Christ, I think, is sublime thoroughly through and through. Christ's identification with all humanity, the gentleness of the Spirit, the affirming voice of the Father. It's all just beautiful. And then there's this <coughs> last bit, right, where, where the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and he's with the wild beast. And it's like, ah, what happened to all that lovely niceness, you know, the baptism moment? Well, Here's the deal, man. Life is hard. It is. Um, There's still a wilderness for us. There's still sometimes the wild beasts. There's still the temptation of the accuser uh, to battle with. The fact of the matter is, is that even as the most deeply loved sons and daughters of God, we will still experience these things, wilderness accusation, wild beasts, however you want to say it. This is, you are my son, my daughter. You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is all true. Let it ring in your head. Let it ring in your heart. And also know that even as the beloved of God, we do experience 
the craziness, the darkness, the, the sometimes the ugliness of the wilderness, of the accusation, of the accuser. Um, and these difficult and dark experiences, here's kind of the, I think, at least for today, takeaway. Sometimes when we experience these things, the wilderness, the wild beasts, the accuser, sometimes we take it as an act, as a indication of some kind of abandonment by God, right? Like if I was really loved by God, then I wouldn't experience difficulty and darkness. It's not so. It's just not so. The reality is that very often, too often, if you ask me, even as the deeply and dearly beloved of God, we do, in fact, experience the wilderness. The threats of the accuser, the wild beasts that come along with that, even as the dearly beloved of God. And so I would say if that's you, if that fits your experience right now, and I, I, you know, I know that to one degree or another that fits for all of us right now, the wild beasts are scratching and clawing at us all right about now. Um, and let me just say that even in the midst of this difficult time, you remain the beloved daughter of God, the beloved son of God. He has spoken this word over humanity. You're my beloved. Let's pray.